0: All right. Hey, good morning. My name is Chaz Allman. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy, and I'm super glad to, uh, to be here with you. Beautiful fall morning. In fact, our passage this morning will also take place in fall. It's my, one of my favorite seasons. But one thing I don't know about, and you probably don't know much about, is what it's like to sail in the fall in the Mediterranean. Maybe you do. I'm not sure, but I can tell you this, I think after reading this passage today, you're probably not going to want to go on a cruise ship anytime soon, at least not out that direction. So I, I can't talk about sea travel and a story of survival against the odds without thinking of one of my most favorite stories of all time. Some of you may know it. It's the story of Ernest Shackleton and his ship, The Endurance. It's one of the greatest bouts of courage, one of the greatest examples of leadership brought on by one of the most ridiculous and unconvincing advertisements of all time that's there on the screen. This is how he recruited his, his men. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful honor and recognition in case of success, Ernest Shackleton. Who signs up for that? Who signs up for that? Not me. But apparently, there were 27 other men that did sign up for that. And one guy that thought that advertisement sounded so good that he would stow away on the ship, along with many dogs and one cat. So on December 5th of 1914, They set sail for the South Atlantic for what would be one of the most dangerous expeditions of all time. It's a mouthful. The Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition with the goal of being the first people to ever cross the whole continent of Antarctica on foot. The last prize left to claim in the history of exploration. Two days after their departure in South Georgia, The Endurance hits pack ice. Their ship was designed to go through pack ice. But unfortunately, on January 18th, the pack ice goes around their ship, as one of the sailors recalls, like an almond stuck in a bar of chocolate, frozen. So it wasn't long before that pack ice started to crush and collapse the ship, and they would fall short of their destination of Antarctica by 85 miles So 10 months after their departure, the ship couldn't take the pressure anymore, and it begins to sink, and the crew salvages what they can as the boat is taking on water, but they're out in the open sea, okay? The only thing that they can escape to is the ice that's around them, also floating in the open sea. So they get on the ice, and incredibly, all 28 people would survive on melted ice and uh, seal meat. So on April 9th of 1916 the pack ice begins to break. They have nowhere to go so they get on their dinghy boats, their rescue boats, and they make for what they think is this place called Elephant Island, 30 miles away from where this pack ice is breaking up. So all these men get out on the open sea and they face the turmoil and the chaos of this frozen water, and they reach, miraculously, Elephant Island. 497 days since they'd hit dry land. Nobody's on Elephant Island. It's not a place of refuge. It's just somewhere that's not floating out in the open sea. At least there's dry ground there. So, Ernest Shackleton and five other men get in, once again, these rescue boats And they make the treacherous journey 800 miles on rescue boats in the open sea to try to reach a whaling station and then come back and rescue the rest of their men. Incredible story. These men are stuck on the island and every morning these men pack up camp. The boss may be coming. The boss may be coming home today. They were ready. They had faith in the man that had brought them thus far where they had survived almost two years up at this point. And the boss, indeed, he does return. It was on August 30th, 1916. All the men would be rescued and they would reach safety. The men received what they were promised, okay, honor and recognition. Incredible story of survival. Incredible story of Promise. This guy comes. This guy comes back. So today, we get to take a glimpse into another remarkable adventure, a better story than that of Shackleton and his men. And fun fact, they found that ship at the bottom of the Weddell Sea uh, of this year. It was like in March. I think it was March 5th this year. You can look online and, and see it. But today we have a picture of better promises. And the passage is going to be helpful for us because it's going to answer this question. I think that we subconsciously think? Does God keep his promises? Does he keep his promises? Some of you may think, well, yeah, I mean, of of course he keeps his promises. He's God, right? So then what does that look like? What does that look like for me today? How does the believer live in light of what he has promised? The way that I interact with my fellow man, the way that I submit myself to God's word, his authority over my life. I think the better question might be, do I believe, do I believe that God keeps his promises? So where we're going to be today is Acts 27 and parts of 28, and you can follow along with me on the screen here. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul And some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adarminium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea. Accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, and the next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly, and he gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. There's no vending machines on ships, okay? So he needs help here. Paul does. And putting out to sea from there... We sailed under the lee of Cyprus. That just means they're sailing along the shelter of the island from from the open sea, from the wind. It kind of shields them, sailing under the lee. You're going to see that several times in here. That's all that means. They're sailing along the coast because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, and he put us on board. All right, so this passage starts out as we. Who's we? There's a lot of people here. I think we, for us, the importance is Luke. Luke's the writer of Acts, remember? You got Paul and Aristarchus. And we're introduced to this guy named Julius. Julius is a Roman soldier. He's the guy who's gonna be in charge of the prison transport going on. The the centurion's gonna be a guy that, kind of is like police slash soldier combo who carries out judicial functions in Roman providences. This is the guy that's calling the shots on the journey. He's in command. And we get to see that he's kind to Paul. He's kind to him. He allows him to go and visit his friends, which sounds kind of strange, right? It sounds more like a cruise. The The ship goes in, hey, Paul, come back at dusk, go see your friends, get replenished. But a couple things here. Paul is a Roman prisoner, but he's also a Roman citizen. So he's going to have a little bit more privilege than some of these other prisoners. But two, and and probably more importantly, Julius, though he shows kindness to him, probably doesn't view Paul as a real threat. He lets him go, replenish himself with his friends, get encouragement, get what he needs to go on to the next place. But he doesn't just let them run around freely. I mean, it's not like Julius just let a busload of uh, prisoners from San Quentin out on Market Square. I mean, he would have had somebody that was with him, an armed guard, the the entire time. He's a man of good judgment, and that's what's going on. So the departure city is Italy, and their destination is Rome. This journey without issues should take about five weeks, and we're going to see Just continually, difficulty, 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 and that's a bit of a pipe dream that that five weeks is not going to happen. But for now, they're taking a nice, pleasant cruise on a coastal vessel down the coast uh, and stopping at ports along the way. So they travel up the coastline of Cyprus, Cilicia, ending up in Myra and Lycia, which is just the southernmost region of the province of Asia. It's about a 14-day sail. Some of you are like, man, I paid like $10,000 for a trip like that before. You know, it sounds like a bit of a Mediterranean cruise, a bit of a dream. But little did you know, you just had to be a prisoner to get that trip for free out there in Rome, like Paul here. So it's a nice trip so far, but in Myra, Julius decides to switch ships. So important to know They don't have passenger travel, like cruise ships down the Mediterranean weren't a thing back then. It wasn't like leisure. It was just hitchhiking via the sea on merchant trips. And this was a grain ship from Egypt. Egypt is the largest supplier of grain for Italy. So they're going to be sailing up and down the coast on their trade route. And this is where Paul and the prisoner party gets put on with 276 people total on board this ship, a detail that we'll see later on. So we pick up back here in verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was near the city of Lacia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. It's very important right here to to remember that. Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with much injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest to spend the winter there. All right, Luke mentions here multiple times them having a little bit of difficulty. In other words, the conditions for sailing are beginning to deteriorate. So they pull into this place called Fair Havens, which they arrive to to with much difficulty is what it says. That just means good harbor, Fair Havens, just a fun fact there. And no doubt they're glad to get off the boat. I mean, they're wet. They've been on the sea for a while. There's probably not very fresh food unless somebody's great at fishing, right? They're glad to get off, stretch their legs and stop for a little while. But fair havens is not a great place to spend the winter. You see, when Luke mentions that they lost a lot of time, it's important because the difficult weather that they faced pulling in made them behind on their trip, and then waiting for that difficult weather to subside made them stay at fair havens a little longer than what they wanted, and the fast is now over. So the thing about the fast is everybody that, that knew anything about sea travel in this area would know that the fast was sometimes as, as late as early October. So the Day of Atonement, the fast happened here and it was dangerous to travel from mid-September to, to mid-November. So that, or, Yeah, November. So that's, that's where they're at. They're kind of in the middle of this. Dangerous sea travel is going on, and Paul is concerned enough to say, whoa, 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 I don't think that this is a great idea here. But remember, I mean, Paul's a prisoner, a well-treated prisoner, but he's still a prisoner. How much influence does a prisoner really have over their own prison transport? I mean, it's kind of audacious of Paul to even like suggest anything like he thought somebody would listen. But he does. And I think it's just Paul's opinion at this point. I don't think it's prophetic. I don't think it's like anything going on aside from Paul. You got to remember, the guy's already experienced three shipwrecks at this point. Okay. He's just not interested in going for round four. He's got souvenirs from the last three. He's like, wait a minute. I know this is, I mean, this guy's very experienced in traveling. I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. But they go anyway. And here we are. Seems like a silly risk for, the, for Julius to decide that, for the owner of the boat, for the captain of the boat. Paul knows his way around a boat, but he doesn't really have the influence he needs The reason why they were willing to take a risk like this is because the Roman government needed grain so bad from Egypt that they would insure the boats, the merchant ships, they would insure the cargo on board, they would insure everything that it would have taken to get that boat to its destination. They needed the grain. So sometimes the ship's owners would go ahead and they'd take the risk. And in this case, it's a bad decision, but they go ahead and they head to Phoenix for a better place to winter. And we're in 13 here. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee, that's that phrase again, of a small island called Kata. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the, on the Sirti. Th- those are, I think, just sandbars off the African coast there. They don't want to hit them. They lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Meaning, stuff's already fallen overboard. They just threw it out themselves this time. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Rough days, rough night. You know, at first, everything's great south winds blowing. They're there. They think it's time. Okay, Paul probably looks like a moron for being worried in the first place. And they go, and not long after, this this wind famously given the name the Northeaster. Anybody guess why it's called that? It's pretty obvious, right? The wind from the north and the wind from the east comes off the island. It collides. Okay, so the islands that they're sailing along to protect them from the wind, ends up pushing them out to sea. So they get pushed off course and they can no longer sail under this shelter on a boat that's not designed for the open water. It's probably here where they stop singing, right? No more orders for mint juleps. This is a rough, rough journey now. So the ship's taking a beating They've got no harbor, they've got no shelter, so they they decide like, okay, we're going to tie ropes inside the hull and reinforce it to prevent it from flexing so much with the waves. And they toss out their gear to lighten the boat that's going to bring it up out of the water a little bit more so the waves aren't sloshing over the side as bad. So, So just put yourself here for a moment. First you start throwing out the extras, you know. I mean, that extra suitcase like the, that the ladies bring, okay, to fit your makeup, your hair dryer, your lotion, your extra shoes, your George Foreman, all those very important things that you need for your trip, your three-day trip, right, to Asheville, okay, with your 75-pound bag of clothes that your husband's going to carry up to the hotel. Can you tell I'm married? Yeah. Okay. Okay. You realize things get so dire, you throw out your bag of clothes with your toothbrush in it. Then you throw out the snacks you brought, you throw out your money, and everything else aside from really the clothes that are on your back. That's where they are. They're not thinking about anything else except surviving the next moment to the next moment, that maybe they'll make it through the hour, maybe they can make it through the day. The scene, I want you to know, is panic. It's chaos. It's panic. They have no control. They're at the mercy of the sea. And then it's here where Paul, the prisoner, remember, stands up. In verse 21, no one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul called the crew together and he said, men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You would have avoided all this damage and loss, but take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. For last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong, to whom I serve, stood beside me. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety To everyone sailing with you. So take courage. For I believe God, it will be just as He said. There's our promise and there's His faith. But we will be shipwrecked on an island. All right, put yourself back here in the scene for just a minute. The men are waiting for the absolute worst to happen. All 276 people. I don't know if they're all men, but they've given up. They're directionless. They're not eating. They've lost all hope for any positive outcome. Then Paul, the prisoner, stands up. Not to gloat, but not to say, I told you so, but to give testimony, to encourage the people on board. I believe the Lord and it will be so. And the specifics of this promise are pivotal in understanding the events in the rest of this story. Two promises, right? All will survive. Not just you, Paul, but All will survive, and you must appear before Caesar. John Stott, a great theologian of the modern era, has—he's dead now—but still modern era, right? So far, this is what he says, and it's worth quoting at length. So far in the Acts, Luke has depicted Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, the pioneer of the three missionary expeditions, the prisoner, and the defendant. Now, however. He portrays him in a different light. He's no longer an honored apostle, but an ordinary man, a lonely Christian, apart from Luke and Aristarchus, among nearly 300 non-Christians, who were either soldiers or prisoners or perhaps merchants or crew. Yet Paul's God-given leadership gifts clearly emerge. It's quite certain, writes William Barclay, that Paul was the most experienced traveler on board that ship Yet it was more than mature experience at sea which made Paul stand out as a leader on board that ship. It was his steadfast Christian faith and character now i don't know about for you, but for me, this is probably where at least one of the places in the Bible where I really feel most connected to to Paul like I know he's an ordinary man, but come on, I mean the guy wrote large chunks of the Bible. We view him more as a superhero of the faith. But here he's just a man, right? He's just a prisoner. Just a man of faith. Just a man that has promise from the Lord. Just a man, just an ordinary person like you and like me. And the only encouragement he has is promise from the Lord. And now it's Paul the prisoner He's the only guy with any courage left. And the firm belief that God and his promise is true. That God's words are trustworthy. Look at what he says. An angel of God to whom I belong, to whom I serve. He's testifying his faith before 276 other people that have lost all hope. And later he says, hey, take courage for I believe God. Paul the prisoner just becomes the captain of the ship and his influence is going to grow as he encourages the people on board to trust God. Look, Paul, he doesn't know the details about how they're going to be saved, what specific island they're going to be on. He doesn't care. I mean, look at how dryly he spills this. Yet now I urge you to take heart. There's going to be no loss of life among you. But only of the ship. Then we must run aground on some island. Some island. We don't see any like argument with God, any conversation going on there. I mean, I know he's in a dream. But wouldn't you wake up and be like, wait, 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 wait. What? That seems extremely inefficient. What do you mean the ship's going to go down? Can we not just like skip that part? Can we not skip that An island? What island? I mean, are there coconuts on this island? Are there pineapples on this island? Are we stuck with bananas? I hate bananas, you know, is Jack Sparrow going to be there? Is Keira Knightley? What are we going to do? How long? How long is this going to, none of that. We have no indication of that. And uh, we don't have any record of anybody else asking any of that. But I sure would. It's the first question that I would ask. I mean, the ship's, what do you mean the ship's going to go down? He has no idea when he's going to go before Caesar in Rome. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care because he trusts God. He doesn't care because he knows God keeps his promises. So then how could Paul be so sure? How does a guy like Paul know that, a guy like just you and me, just a man, knows that God fulfills his promises? Paul knows that the entire Old Testament was filled with the promises of the coming of the Redeemer, the Rescuer, and the Rescuer comes, and the Rescuer, Jesus, meets him on the Damascus Road. He knows God keeps his promises because he saved him. And it's here, I think, where this becomes very helpful for us today. You probably, maybe you have, but I sure haven't, had any specific dreams about something that's going to come to pass that God's revealed to you, a certain scenario delivered by an angel about something specific. Probably not, but as believers... We all share a promise, a hope, a hope and and an unexplainable confidence that's there when all hope seems to have been lost, when you've thrown everything out overboard on a ship and nothing seems to be working. You know others that have lost hope. They've got nothing else to cling on to, or at least what they are clinging on to, what you might be clinging on to is just another broken promise. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. If not, it really doesn't take that long to either get there or to find somebody that's there. But see, I think there's there's good news that we do not have to navigate life alone in a cold, dark sea without hope. God's revealed his plan to you, his promise fulfilled in his word. In fact, I'd say he's given us a better promise than he does Paul of just simple survival and appearing before Caesar here. That total restoration, total restoration, think about that, for all eternity is going to be had in Jesus, that God's kingdom will rule. It will rule. And that in Jesus, victory will be had. And that there's going to be safe landing for you at the end of this life, though it may not have been calm passage. It was a difficult one, right? A difficult journey. And I think through Jesus, right, I get to, I get to be in that victory. I get to see this promise unfold, a hope and a security that can then be shared with others. Therefore, like Paul We can stand up with confidence and boldly proclaim God's promises and proclaim that, hey, though your ship might be sinking, there's life on the other side and that life is eternal and that life is with Jesus and that he saves forever. What a great display of the glory of God to stand firm on his promises amidst chaos and destruction. The believer should be one of the most steadfast people. Because I believe God's promises, his kingdom will rule, and I'll see him face to face. Your boat might be going down, right? But the journey we're on in perspective is eternal. It's not just here. It's not just this life. God doesn't promise you safe passage, only safe landing. You will arrive in Jesus, but the journey might be difficult. And you see the tone that changes, the authority of Paul that changes here when he gets the promise from the Lord and he stands up and he speaks and his demeanor changes. And it's where we pick up in verse 27. When the 14th night had come as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, that's 120 feet, a little further They took another sounding again, they're just measuring, and found 15 fathoms. Now we're 90 feet deep. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you've continued in suspense and without food. Having taken nothing, therefore I urge you to take some food. For it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all, there's the 276 people on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. It's interesting, the sailors, they're so experienced, they can smell that they're probably getting close to land, so they start taking measurements. That's what's going on here. Fearing that they're going to hit the rocks or crash up into the side of this island, they throw four anchors out of the back of the boat to probably just create drag and slow it down. But they don't take much faith in that strategy because it's not long afterward where they throw some other anchors out of the front of the boat to stabilize it so they can kind of sneak off in the lifeboat and get out of there. It's a desperate effort, but you know, what do you do? They, they don't want to get shipwrecked, but Paul, being an experienced sailor himself, he catches wind of the plan, and he goes to Julius, the guy who didn't listen to him in the beginning, remember, and says, hey, I think these guys are trying to escape via this lifeboat, and all survive, okay, or we, or we all die, and it's Julius who then begins to listen to Paul, the guy in charge. Paul, once again, as we see, is kind of taking control of the boat. Paul's influence has increased just a few more notches here, as we'll see see it continue to do so throughout the story as he has faith. These guys, they make it to daylight, and it's Paul who then again steps up and gives encouragement to the boat, encourages them to eat. If you've ever been in a crisis situation, panic, turmoil, you've been afraid it's hard to eat, right? I mean, your body just does something to where it doesn't communicate with your mind that you're hungry, you're in fight or flight, you're just, you're trying to stay or survive, you're trying to stay alert, but, but um, like food just feels kind of sickening. Well, these folks have been 14 days without eating. I mean, I'm sure they had like a snack here and there, but they didn't Chinese buffet style. They didn't sit down and like have a meal, We've all been there. We've been anxious. And Paul sits him down, and he says, you need to eat. You need to eat. And it's interesting how he goes about this. He doesn't just tell him to eat. He formalizes it. He turns it into something. It's not the Lord's Supper. All he's doing is blessing the food, but it wasn't a mindless act. Paul, like the good evangelist he is, purposely takes an opportunity to visually, visually display his devotion to God, the God who he said earlier, who he serves, the God who the other 275 people are now hoping in, and he blesses the food, and he distributes it, and they begin to eat. Why is this a special moment? Through Paul's leadership, these people, at least to a point, begin to trust in God's promise. At least to some, some degree to where their stomachs are settled enough to where they can eat. They're borrowing some faith from Paul, but they throw out the rest of the wheat on the ship. In other words, they're starting to say, okay, well, with, with bellies full, I'm going to trust that we're going to make it to land. We're going to survive before we die of starvation. Now they have no lifeboat and they have no food. <laughs> There's no recourse here. And with bellies full and spirits lifted, the sun comes up, which is where we are in verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they make for the beach but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. Uh-oh. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broke up by the surf. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest On planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was, they were all brought safely to land. With a lighter boat, they're up out of the water a little more. They don't have a gas pedal. They got sails and they're full force trying to make it to the the shore. Get close enough, at least where it's a safer swim during this storm. It's still going and they've cut anchor. But unfortunately, they crashed too early. So the the front of the ship stuck and the waves are just smashing into the back of it. So this is not like an immediate, you don't think like dynamite explosion, you know, planks of wood flying everywhere. It was a slower process. I mean, enough time for the soldiers to stop and think, hey, wait a minute. Like instead of all these prisoners that we're responsible for with our lives, remember at that time, if the prisoners escape and you're in charge of that prisoner, the the, pr- the person in charge of them gets killed. It's Your life is on the line. teaches them how to do a good job, right? Your life is literally on the line to get these people to their destination. So they say, well, we'll kill them and we'll explain to whoever our superior is that we're sorry, instead of them escaping, we just killed them all and then we all made it to shore. It's interesting how quickly they start to trust in their own logic and reasoning here. One moment they're encouraged by... Paul, the prisoner, Paul's promise from God, and the next moment they want to kill everybody and save themselves. But look who steps in here. Our boy Julius, captain of the guard, uses his authority, and for Paul's sake, Julius intervenes and he stops the plan. He stops the plan. It's him who's probably gonna face the death penalty if Paul's wrong which means Julius probably believes God at this point. He probably believes Paul, and he believes the promise of God. We're going to make it. are going to make it. They're spared, just as your soul spared, for Jesus' sake, allowing you to arrive safely into eternity. I mean, how cool, right, to see God's promises unfold as we go. And we make it here to chapter 28. In Acts. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta and the native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man's a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the snake into the fire, and he suffered no harm. There they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they'd waited a long time, can you imagine these people just staring at him? When's he going to die? When's he going to die? You know, they probably got some whatever they had goats or sticks on the line for who takes the most home for gambling there. And so no misfortune comes to him. They changed their minds and they said that he must be a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, which he's just like the probably the, he's the, he is the Roman governor. He's a very important figure uh, of this, of this island here, Malta. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery and Paul visited him and he prayed and putting his hands on him healed him and when this had taken place the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured and they honored us greatly and we were about to sail when we were about to sail they put on board everything whatever we needed if you've ever been cold and wet for a good amount of time, really not long, just a few minutes, you walk out in the rain, you're ready to get some warmth. You're ready to get a dry fire, some dry clothes on to have some hospitality. And I can't help but think of all the other possible scenarios that could have gone on right here. And it worked out so well. I mean, without God orchestrating all this to happen, I mean, the fact that the guys that couldn't swim made it to the island, they're just paddle boarding along from however deep they were out in the sea. They all make it during the storm. The guys that can swim, the dogs, the whoever. You know, they all survive. They're all there. The fact that they're not met with like spears and bow and arrows on the island that they arrive to. But these people, they're kind. They're kind. They don't know where they are. They're just finding it out. And they arrive safely. But unfortunately... The creatures there aren't as hospitable as the people to Paul. He gets bit by a snake shortly after arriving. And the native people see it and they think, well, this guy, you know, he must be a murderer. And they're waiting for him to fall over dead. We don't see any wavering from Paul here, do we? He, we don't see any documentation from Luke about medical treatment. or he, Paul just seems to nonchalantly... Shake this viper off into the fire and he goes about his day. And, you know, he probably looked like a weirdo, right? I mean, who doesn't respond? Who doesn't react to this? Paul, his steadfastness, not shipwreck, not storms at sea, not one of the most deadly snake bites in the world is going to alter his view of God and his promise. Nothing is going to stop Paul appearing before Caesar unwavering. In this scene here, while it's less dramatic, it reminds me of Acts 14. You remember? It's kind of the reverse, though. I preached uh, last time I was up here. The people, uh, Paul and Barnabas, come in to Acts and they say, hey, uh, will we, they we heal this guy? And they start with the whole city worships him. The priest comes out and they offer oxen and garlands and sacrifice. And Paul and Barnabas tear the robes and whoa, 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 whoa. Stop. I'm not God. I'm not a God. This is the reverse. Now they get snake bitten. He doesn't die. He must be God. He must be God, a God. I think his response is probably the same as it was in Acts 14 here. He's stuck on this island for three months. No doubt some sermons came from this instance of the one true God that saves, the one true God that fulfills his promises, the one true God that Paul serves and worships. He's not God. He doesn't want him to think that, and he points him in that direction, I'm sure. I mean, we just know we know Paul. But he doesn't only heal Paul. He allows Paul to start healing other people on the island. He learns that this guy is the, the governor of this area. His father's sick. He weighs hands on him, and he's healed. News travels fast in small towns. Who's kissing who at the Hobby Lobby, right, in high school? Who's hanging out at the Sonic together? I mean, you know, if you've got teenagers, small town words travel fast. And news of healing travels quickly. And it's not long before sick people from all over come around and Paul heals them. And as a sign of their gratitude, they offer provisions. In fact, it says everything on board we needed and off they sail to Rome, God using an unbelieving people to accomplish his plan. He uses unbelieving people to provide everything they need to reach Rome. And they hop on a ship that was harboring there for the winter and head out, as Luke says. So we came to Rome prematurely. He's, they haven't even got to Rome yet. He's just, we're going to get there. And after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Piccioli, Piccioli. And we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apias, and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God, and he took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And this journey finally ends as we conclude today this sermon. What should have taken them five weeks ends up taking four months The news of Paul's travel to Rome would reach Rome before Paul would. Paul, who'd longed to visit them, yet couldn't. Who had written a letter to the Romans three years previously. These people knew he was coming. They want to meet him. They want to see him. But most importantly, God's promise to Paul would be fulfilled. And soon, he would appear before Caesar. Paul's in Rome, the heart of the Gentile world as we begin to conclude this 28th chapter of Acts next week, and we'll be done there. Look, if you're here this morning, I want you to know above all else that God's promise of restoration will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. There is nothing that can happen that will stop it. That every single knee will bow before the holy God of the universe. Whether you're for him or against him, your knee is going to hit the ground. You will bow to God's authority. There will be a new heaven, there will be a new, a new earth, there will be restoration. And for some of you, that's going to be a day of just absolute great joy. We get off that terrifying boat onto some dry land and see the fruition of God's promises come to fulfillment. And I think the older we get, the more we desire that, right? But for some of you, it's going to be terror, right? The thought of meeting Jesus face to face. You'd probably rather be on that boat. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you think that that would bring fear and terror. I want to appeal to you directly, okay? I wish I could look at you. I know you're probably not going to come up to me and tell me that, that that's a terror. But I want you to know that God is good. God is kind, He keeps his promises. He's trustworthy. He's given himself for you. And he wants to know you. That you just don't have to live without hope and a promise anymore. That there's a safe arrival home for you. It's not just a dark and stormy sea without hope. Restoration is coming for those who know Jesus, we will be redeemed.